0: today on pediatrics now we're bringing you grand rounds here's a really interesting talk the vaping epidemic learning to ask counsel and treat this is for moc credit our speaker is dr susan Sirota, a pediatrician in independent primary care practice for more than 25 years
1: she received her medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine and completed her pediatric residency at Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, formerly we knew it as Children's, um, Children's Memorial Hospital, where she also served as a chief resident. She is an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at Northwestern Weinberg School of Medicine where she has been recognized for excellence in teaching and she is a 2022 recipient of the Department of Pediatrics Distinguished Individual Contributor Service Award. Dr. Sirota is the chief medical officer and chairperson of the Pediatrics, a large pediatric group practice without walls. Dr. Sirota is the national leader in pediatric practice management, pediatric telehealth, and the innovation of pediatric practice. In addition to serving on the AAP's e-cigarette chapter champion. She is active in AAP section on administration and practice management and serves on AAP's National Conference and Examination Planning Group. The title for her presentation today is The Waping Epidemic Learning to Ask, Counsel and Treat. Dr. Serrata, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. I'm looking forward to your presentation. Thank you. The floor is yours.
0: Good morning. Thank you for the introduction. Can you hear me fine now?
1: Yeah, we can hear you.
0: Yeah. All right. It's my pleasure to present this morning. Let's jump right in and learn about asking, counseling, and treating when it comes to youth vaping. I have no relevant financial disclosures. Um, I serve as the AAP e-cigarette chapter champion, as you heard, for the chapter in Illinois, and I'd like to acknowledge my chapter champion colleagues who um, work around the country along with three individuals at the AAP Richmond Center, Ms. Kasiska, Ms. Paula Martin, and Ms. Letitia Brown. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Richmond Center was established to eliminate children's exposure to tobacco products, secondhand smoke, and effectively brings together all of the tobacco control activities at the AAP. What I hope to do today is bring you up to date on this topic and provide you with tools that you can use to screen and begin treating patients regardless of your pediatric role or what, in what way you interact with children. Because if you care for youth, you are encountering patients that are vaping, whether you realize it or not. And some youth see specialists more often than they see primary care physicians, So we all need to learn about vaping. We need to learn to screen, to counsel, and either directly treat or support the treatment of our patients. Because in fact, currently, half of all adolescents who are vaping report that they want to quit. So our objectives today are to review the basics of e-cigarettes. I wanna help you understand the impact on youth by looking at current trends as far as youth and some of the research. We're gonna illustrate an approach to um, counseling and to screening that can be used across all pediatric settings. And then we're gonna talk about how to initiate treatment for your patients, including nicotine replacement therapy. I'm going to focus specifically on nicotine vaping But I I want to help everyone understand that we are really now at a place when it comes to vaping where there's this triangulum or intersection between tobacco products and their use, nicotine vaping and marijuana use among teens. So it's not really just one substance. Okay, so let's start with e-cigarette 101. We're gonna go over terms. We're gonna look at device types. We're gonna talk about what's in a vape. We're gonna look at how youth are targeted both through flavoring and disposable devices, and then talk a little bit about what's new. So what's in a name? Um, When we first started talking about these products in pediatrics, we referred to them as ENDS or electronic nicotine delivery system. And as you can see, there are so many different types of devices, I have illustrated them by name for you here in this slide. And what we're talking about though with all of them is vaporization of a substance. It could be an oil, a liquid, it could be a plant material. It's then heated to create an aerosolized vapor or aerosol and then that active ingredient is inhaled. So here's a slide that gives you an idea, uh, visually, of the variety of devices. There is everything from electronic cigars and pipes to electronic closed systems, so those include things like pod-based systems, Juul, probably one of the best known, you can see some of those Um, On the left, then in the middle, you see disposable devices. Those are also closed systems without cartridges. And then we have refillable or open systems. So these are some of the bigger devices like tank systems, mods, pods, some of the more personalized devices that uh, teens use currently disposables are the most commonly used devices. And there are a few reasons um, that that's probably the case. First, that those devices have been allowed to avoid some of the flavor bands that exist across our country. They provide the teens with many options for flavors and they also tend to be less expensive. One thing about vaping is it is an expensive habit for teens. The potency of these devices, in particular, the disposable devices, have really skyrocketed. So when they first came to the market, most of these devices, just like the Juul cartridge, had about 200 puffs in them. 200 puffs is the equivalent of the amount of tobacco in a pack of cigarettes. Now what we see, if you went on the Internet today and you decided to purchase one of these devices, which is very easy to do, by the way, on the Internet for any teen, even if they're not old enough, you will see that these devices are now in the range of not 200 puffs, but 5,000 to 7,000. And some of the really supercharged devices are sold and those have as much as 10,000 puffs in them, single disposable device. Also, some youth actually refill these cartridges or these pods that were intended to be single use so they can continue to be used. And in fact, one of the ways that the industry gets around some of the regulations of the cartridges is they have started to sell what are essentially jewel compatible pods that can be refillable. So there are many, many ways for teens to access these high doses of nicotine. Vaping is also a culture, not just something that impacts the health of you, it's a culture, there's an entire lexicon that refers to everything from inhaling to what are called vape tricks, to different nicknames for devices, as well as the symptoms of nicotine exposure. And these terms are familiar to our patients. And so the reason I bring this up is because our screening can be much more effective and more reliable if we can learn to use the language that our teens use. So for example, if you ask a young teen if they use e-cigarettes, even if they're vaping and they're intending to be honest with you, they might say no because they may be picturing one of the very early generation devices that's electronic but actually looks like a cigarette. On the other hand, if you say something like, Do you use pens? Do you use any disposables like puff bar? Have you ever jeweled? Then they might be more um, likely to let you know what they're doing and really understand what you're asking them. So every electronic nicotine delivery system has the same basic components. I like to refer to this slide as the anatomy of a vape. And what we see is there's a battery. The battery provides the source of power, of course. Many devices also have some sort of switch in them that turns on and off the heating element. These are fairly sophisticated devices, so they include a microprocessor. There's a heating element often referred to as an atomizer that heats the liquid or what we um, often hear people refer to as the e-juice. And it's the heating of that liquid that creates the aerosol. And then ultimately there's the mouthpiece for inhaling. It's important for all of us to remember that e-cigarettes are not currently approved by the FDA as a quit smoking aid. So this is not something that has been approved as a device to quit smoking. And in fact, um, very recently the US Preventive Services Task Force has concluded that the evidence is insufficient to recommend e-cigarettes for smoking cessation in adults. And that includes pregnant adults as well. So what's in a vape? Well, first of all, we always want our patients to know and we want their parents to know this is not vapor. This is not water vapor that entirely evaporates. This is really an aerosol. It's a mixture of chemicals that are suspended in gas. And these aerosols leave droplets behind just like other aerosols that we use and we know in our environment. And so what that means is not only is there exposure to the individual inhaling the aerosol, but to those around them. And not just through the air, but also because of the aerosol, there are droplets, chemical droplets that are left behind. And those droplets can be absorbed through skin as well as ingested through just hand to mouth contact. So besides nicotine, there are volatile organic compounds in this vape, ultrafine particles that get very deep into the lungs, um, many known cancer-causing chemicals, but um, probably most notable are um, acid aldehyde, formaldehyde, and the benzenes. And this comes, especially the aldehydes, come from heating the propylene glycol and vegetable glycerin, which are the oils that are used in the ejus There are heavy metals. Many of these come from not just the actual um, heating process and chemicals that come out in the aerosol, but heavy metals like nickel tin or lead because they're used in the heating elements in these devices. And then um, finally, and this is probably familiar to many people, this came out fairly early on, uh, flavorings such as diacetyl, which is a common flavoring when that's heated, it's been associated um, particularly through inhalation with bronchiolitis obliterans and um, a lay term for that that many people know it is, is popcorn lung. So that's the, the reason for that illustration. So um, we might not and know, we, we do not know about the long-term effects of vaping and these chemicals going into the lungs, as well as those of us who inhale it as a secondhand aerosol. And so we need to learn more about that toxicity. Of course, we're gonna learn that over time, but we do know about the harms of nicotine. Nicotine is a primary psychoactive ingredient. It comes from the tobacco plant, of course. And it's highly addictive. It's one of the most addictive chemicals that teens are exposed to. Nicotine facilitates addiction because the adolescent brain is uniquely vulnerable to the rewarding effects of nicotine. And of course, the earlier the use of nicotine containing products in our patients, the stronger the addiction and the more difficult it is for teens to quit. Um, There's several areas of the brain that are impacted, but some of the um, main concerns that we see in young people is the impact on attention, learning, mood, and impulse control. And as I always like to remind my patients and those who I counsel, 90% of addiction begins in the teen years. So this is why we care so much about it. So let's look how nicotine, look at how nicotine has been modified in these newer devices, because it is not the same thing as the tobacco from the plant that we see in other tobacco products. So um, this is what the industry likes to call synthetic or non-tobacco nicotine. That sort of language was also devised as a way to find loopholes to get around the federal regulations. But at any rate, what um, these companies have done is they've created their own proprietary nicotine salts. So these salts exist in the acidic range of a pH scale as opposed to free base nicotine, which was used earlier. They deliver much higher levels of nicotine through these devices. They tend to be less irritating to the users. So this is considered better for a newer user who's trying to adjust to that harshness of nicotine. Um, or other tobacco products. And um, it is starting to look like these nicotine salts increase the potential for addiction. Flavors are the single biggest factor that contributed to the marketing success of e-cigarettes. It's also what continues to drive this epidemic. These flavors are clearly designed to appeal to youth. They disguise the harsh taste of the tobacco. You can see in this slide here, Um, These don't appear to be flavors that are particularly appealing to adults. And in fact, the most popular flavors for kids are candy flavors, fruit flavors, and dessert flavors. There's a perception of harmlessness that gets perpetuated with these youthful flavors. And in fact, as far back as 2017, when youth were surveyed, many thought that they were vaping just flavor. There's actually no such thing as a flavor device that does not include some nicotine. And um, as I'll show you in some upcoming slides, there are youth who still continue to believe that all their vaping is flavored. The um, flavors are mixed with the nicotine, of course, the uh, propylene glycol or vegetable glycerin, which are the oils and e-juice. And um, there's a lot of comments when, when these products are purchased about the flavors being approved or being safe. And it's really important to remind our patients that these flavors are proven safe for ingesting, but they've never been proven safe for inhalation. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. I thought that flavors were banned in 2020. How are there all of these flavor devices for kids to still be using? Well, not exactly. So there was a flavor ban that went into effect um, February of 2020, but that was a very limited ban. Um, the only thing that was banned were um, flavors of cartridge-based e-cigarettes, so think jewel pods, and all of the flavors except menthol were banned. Menthol is, and and we could talk at length and I'm not going to, about menthol, its impact, the social injustices, and how menthol has truly been used to target specific populations and maintain addiction to tobacco products. Um, So in May of 2022, the FDA announced that they were planning to ban the manufacture and sales of menthol flavored cigarettes and menthol flavored cigars in the United States. And that's because they make up about one third of the cigarette market and more than 15 million smokers are using them. But what we really need to be thinking about is a ban on all flavored tobacco products because this limited flavor ban um, allowed e-juice solutions, and I already mentioned to you how many cartridge-based devices can be refilled and um, refilled with these flavored e-juices with high doses of nicotine. And of course, these non-refillable disposables that have very high doses of nicotine in them um, did not come under regulation and are available in thousands of flavors. So this is a little bit of a busy slide, this figure here, Um, but I wanna explain to you why I'm showing you. And um, when that ban came into place in 2020, Monitoring the Future, which looks at all sorts of used substance use, including vaping, compared product use, asking teens, which products do you use? And they looked at 2020 versus 2021. So the gray bars are 2020. The dotted bars to the right of them represent um, devices that teens were using in 2021. And if you look at the far left in the oval that I've highlighted, that was Juul. Juul had about 75% of the e-cigarette market before this flavor ban came about in 2020. And then when their flavored cartridges came under regulation, teens just shifted to the product that they used and you can see on the far right where it says other when they drilled down in these questions and they said well what was other Virtu- virtually all of those teens a significant number noted that it was puff bar and puff bar really quickly replaced jewel as the device of choice for teens So let's look at what's happening as far as youth use trends, because much of our national data comes from these surveys of youth, and there are two major sources, one is monitoring the future, it comes out of the University of Michigan, and that is done annually, and um, each year they survey approximately 35 to 40,000 youth in eighth, 10th and 12th grades, across all different private public schools, different size schools, and it's considered a, a really great representative survey of what's happening nationally with all sorts of substance use. We also have the FDA's National Youth Tobacco Survey that is done. Um, Then there are state-based reports. You can look up your state-based report. You can even look up by county to see what's happening, even by community. But as we've been through the pandemic, Um, Many states weren't able to collect their data when when students weren't in school or some of these things just didn't happen. Um, There is no doubt that in 2021, youth e-cigarette use was still a very serious public health problem. At that time, almost one in five high school seniors were vaping. When we look at the monitoring the future data from 2022, which is our most recent data, among 12th graders or seniors in high school, When we look at past 30-day use, and past 30-day use is important because it's suggestive of regular use as opposed to ever using. And when we looked at past 30-day use of 12th graders in 2022, nearly 21% um, were vaping nicotine. And just to give you perspective um, in comparison, alcohol use in that grade level was 28% and cannabis use was 20%. So as I was saying earlier, there's this triangulum cannabis is right up there with nicotine. Among eighth grade students, 7% vape nicotine in 2022, and among 12th graders, 14%. So you can see there's this, you know, significant exponential increase as kids move through their teen years. Because of incomplete data in 2020, so these surveys were cut short in 2020 because of the pandemic coming in March, and then differences in collection procedures in 2021, because across the country, many students were still in remote learning. It really isn't possible for us to compare our data from 2020 to 2021. But what it looked like is in 2020, we saw a bit of decrease from 2019. Then we saw this holding steady At these high rates in 2021, where more than 2 million users, it was actually 2.2 million users were using e-cigarettes, and now we're seeing an increase further as we come to 2022. I want to show you some very frightening trends among current users, and this is the 2021 data from the FDA, the National Youth Tobacco Survey. So when we looked at current users, Two in five were using e-cigarettes frequently, and that's defined as 20 days a month. But about one in four, nearly 25%, were using these daily. And when we look at daily use, what this is really suggestive of is a very high level of nicotine dependence. And of course, nearly 85% of these youth reported using flavored e-cigarettes. So again, as I told you, flavors continue to play a very significant role in driving this epidemic. 2022, we move up to more than two and a half million high school and middle schoolers who are current e-cigarette users, meaning it's something that they are doing on some sort of regular basis. And in fact, now more than one in four are using them daily. Disposables are the most common device and flavors continue to play a very significant role. The, um, disposable industry for e-cigarette devices in um, one report I saw is predicted to be an $18 billion industry by the year 2032, 10 years from now. So the final use trend I wanna address with you are reasons for vaping. And if you focus on the top four, you'll see that those reasons over several years from 2015 to 2019 remain consistent and they've also increased a bit over time. And those are that teens like to see what it's like or experiment, which is not surprising to those of us who are pediatricians. Second, because it tastes good. So there's the impact of flavors. Third, because they wanna have a good time or social. And vaping is something that's incredibly social. There are many teens who are regular vapers and have never purchased their own device, but they share these with their friends when they're spending social time together. And then fourth is to relax or relieve tension, something very important to keep in mind as we've seen this other uh, health crisis we have with teens, which is the increase in anxiety. Knowledge of these reasons is important, but it's also helpful because when you ask about use and you want to engage your patients in meaningful counseling conversations, it's important to have some understanding about why this might be going on and what you can suggest to them. So although relatively limited, research is starting to reveal a picture of concerning health risks around e-cigarette use, and um, I want to focus on four areas. First, there's a growing body of data that's indicating e-cigarettes lead to an increase in cigarette use or combustible t- tobacco products. So teen e-cigarette use, um, if anyone's ever been a user, uh, we see information that says they may be um, as much as three and a half to seven times more likely to have subsequent conventional cigarette use. Teens who are experimenting with cigarettes um, were also using e-cigarettes and um, teens who, sorry, teens who um, experiment with cigarettes who are also using e-cigarettes were more likely to progress to establish cigarette smoking in addition to e-cigarette use. Um, In addition, youth who use e-cigarettes have an increased likelihood of marijuana use. And it's been reported that about 9% of youth Um, have used cannabis in e-cigarettes in some electronic device. If we look at the pulmonary effects, we see increase in cough and wheezing in adolescents. There's some mixed information about the impact um, on asthma, but enough evidence to suggest that e-cigarette use is associated with an increase in asthma exacerbations. And adolescent users of e-cigarettes definitely have reported rates and higher reported rates of chronic bronchitis symptoms. Um, I want to also mention e-Valley, the uh, e-cigarette and or vaping product associated lung injury. This continues to exist. If you remember, the CDC was tracking this: how many cases, how many deaths. We were hearing a lot about this up until the start of the pandemic in 2020. The CDC is no longer tracking this, but this exists. If any of you um, treat pediatric patients in the hospitalists or your hospitalist, you know that you're continuing to admit kids with this. We're seeing this in my own practice. And this is a life-threatening and in some cases, fatal condition, but we need to recognize it. But we also need to understand um, its root in nicotine dependence. so We can help teens when they recover from this illness. And finally, um, looking at COVID early in the pandemic, teens who were vaping were five times more likely to test positive for COVID. So um, here, this I wanna show you what, what, where, where some of this information is coming from. This paper is published in 2017. It was one of the first to point out that e-cigarettes are effectively the, I like to say, the on-ramp for cigarette smoking and use, and they absolutely are not associated with cessation. And um, it, you know, if you look at this figure here from the authors of this paper, they showed that the pooled adjusted odds ratio, I have it in the little red box here, for subsequent cigarette smoking initiation was three and a half. Um, and that was baseline um, ever you know e-cigarette users compared to someone at baseline who had never used e-cigarettes. So these authors concluded there was consistent and strong evidence that e-cigarette use is associated with an increased of subsequent cigarette smoking. This is a more recent cohort study from the summer that found that cannabis naive adolescents, so adolescents who had never used cannabis, but who had used electronic cigarettes were significantly more likely to report cannabis use a year later compared to those who had not. And so um, if you look at this table, From their paper, their findings in this table do suggest a strong association, I have them in the red box on the left, between adolescent e-cigarette use and subsequent cannabis use. And um, despite this strong association that they were able to demonstrate at the individual level, it did seem to have a minimal association with the prevalence of cannabis use looking at the population level. So there's probably some more work to do there or maybe a little bit different study design could help us um, learn more about what's happening at the population level. So uh, December, 2021, this is a cross-sectional study. It included data from four different study populations in both California and Connecticut. And these youth were between the ages of 13 and 21 years. And in these populations, um, adolescent and young adults who were using e-cigarettes had uh, use that was positively associated with symptoms of bronchitis, shortness of breath, but they didn't see statistically significant association with asthma exacerbation. However, um, this is a paper that had come out in the year prior in 2020. And these authors looked at both e-cigarette use, but also secondhand exposure to e-cigarette aerosols. And they concluded from um, their cross-sectional study that e-cigarette use and passive exposure to the aerosols negatively impacted respiratory health among adolescents. So we're seeing, you know, information that is not good. And um, I'm sure we're gonna continue to to see more information along these lines. I um, finally wanted to show you where this data from vaping and COVID came from. It came from Bonnie Halpern-Fesher's Belscher's group at Stanford, she does a tremendous amount of work, research in this area, and has produced an outstanding tobacco toolkit in my references, which I encourage you to look at. But this was done very early in the pandemic. So at a time where many, many youth in particular still had not had COVID, And she looked at young people who were ever e-cigarette users, and then she also looked at people who were dual users, ever e-cigarette users and conventional cigarette users, and saw that e-cigarettes alone made someone five times more likely to be diagnosed with COVID, and a dual user was seven times more likely. So we have um, potential for a lot of lung disease to see in these patients over the years. So before I move into my sort of last section, which is screening and treatment, I want to point out some of the ways that teens who vape might show up in your clinic. So we can educate parents about this, but we need to educate pediatric clinicians about this because we don't want to miss these kids. Many of these scenarios can represent missed opportunities to screen if a physician is not aware. So what do you typically see? Very, very common is to see kids who have excessive thirst or their parents describe them as having excessive thirst. They're drinking a lot, lots of water. And that's because vaping um, is, you know, leads to a very constant dry mouth, sore throat from the irritation of the nicotine dry skin. We see nosebleeds. We'll see big kids who start to present with recurrent nosebleeds who you have never seen for epistaxis before. And that's because the propylene glycol has this humectant effect, this drying effect. And it also really dries out the nose, not just the mouth and, and the rest of the upper airway. We see frequent respiratory illness. So kids might be coming in um, with more coughs, more chronic coughs, more recurrent sinusitis when this was not their pattern um, early on or prior to the initiation of their vaping. We see recurrent pneumonias, sometimes the new onset of wheezing or asthma unexpectedly. And finally, you'll see teens, if you screen like I do for things like um, using sugary beverages high caffeine beverages like energy drinks, you kind of know what your teen patient's habits are from one well visit to the next. And when you see teens who are all of a sudden avoiding caffeine when they had a caffeine habit, or they're describing a sensitivity to caffeine, that's a really good clue too. And um, the reason I think we all need to know about this is that um, some, some teens When they present for a sick visit in a pediatrician's office or they they present to see a subspecialist, they are not seen privately. So in well visits, we give teens private time, but in these other scenarios where they're sick or they're seeing a specialist for the first time, we may not give them private time. And if we don't give them private time, we're not going to be able to screen and determine that this might be a health issue for them. I wanna tell you one story. I saw a patient for a 14 year well visit not too long ago, and I hadn't seen her in about two years. A year prior, she had been seen by one of my partners in my office, and um, she had had a complaint at that time of being thirsty, drinking a lot of water. Her parents, of course, were concerned about diabetes. We were in place of the pandemic where we were seeing a higher rate of new onset diabetes. So, um, you know, attention was given to ruling out that diagnosis, which of course happened, and everyone moved on. And when she came back to see me, The next year, what was going on at that time is she had actually started vaping. And by the time I saw her a year later, she had severe nicotine dependence and she had already worked her way into uh, a marijuana substance use disorder. So really important to know these signs and look for them. So with this background information that I've given you, let's discuss how you can do more to manage this health condition in your patients and in your practice. So we're going to focus on an approach that's referred to the ask, counsel, treat, or the ACT model. And what's really important is this involves, in the context of the visit, a requirement for private time with the patient, the physician and the patient, or the clinician and the patient, without a parent or guardian in the room. I'm going to... share with you this resource is really important resource because this approach is highlighted in a comprehensive resource that was put out by the AAP. It's called the Tobacco Cessation Tool or Youth Tobacco Cessation Considerations for Clinicians. And this is what it looks like in this slide here on the right. It's a very practical tool. It is specifically practical so anyone can use it and use it very easily. It is product agnostic. So the focus is all tobacco and nicotine products. And it is not a prevention tool it's cessation focused but it has content that lets you gain guidance on screening and counseling helps you learn how to link your patients to both behavioral support as well as pharmacological treatment and um, all sorts of easily referenced tools so that you could be very successful yourself in treating your patients so Um, Let's start with the ask. When we talk about asking, we're talking about screening all youth age 11 and up for tobacco or nicotine use. This is very quick in most cases. You just ask a question and the questions need to be inclusive of things like smoking, vaping, other tobacco products. So you might say something like, do you use any tobacco or vaping products? Things like cigarettes, vapes like Puff Bar or Stig, ever use any pouches or dip? So you use that language, as I mentioned earlier, that makes sense to your patient. And then based on their answer, you might ask some follow-up questions too, like, well, do your friends or any of your family members use any tobacco or vaping products? Have you even ever tried any tobacco or vaping product? And if you have, like, which ones? What have you tried? And then you might also ask if you've tried, oh, how many times have you tried it? And what have you tried? So that's how you ask. It's very quick. If you need something that's even more efficient, there are some excellent screening tools, and these can be sent to patients through patient portal ahead of time in a visit. They can be given to a patient on paper to fill out while they're waiting to see the physician in a visit. And my personal favorite I'm showing you in this slide here, this I refer to, or we refer to as the Honk, and it's the Hooked on Nicotine Checklist. And what it is is it's, it's a no-cost tool that anyone can use. It's a 10-item screening tool, And it was really designed to assess uh, tobacco or nicotine dependence, that loss of autonomy over tobacco in adolescent vapors and um, endorsement of any item. So any yes answer to any of these 10 items tells us that there is a concern with nicotine use. And then the sum of all of the endorsed items really indicates to what degree we're seeing nicotine dependence. If you are someone who is in primary care, I'm not sure who the audience is for this Grand Rounds, but if you're in someone in primary care and you're already screening for substance use and using something, for example, like the CRAFT, you can just shift to the CRAFT plus N and you can do all of this screening or asking together with what you're already doing. Next, we move on to counseling. Counseling is for anyone who is using a tobacco or nicotine product. And if someone is not using, then your counseling is really an opportunity to praise your patient for their healthy choices, and then try to give them a health message that's personalized to them as to why you think it's a great idea that it's something that they are not doing. Again, counseling is gonna require private time in the room with the patient without the parent. So, we counsel all teens who are using any nicotine, regardless of the amount. So, we counsel all teens to quit. How is this done? We have honest, open conversation. We need to be um, respectful with our language, non judgmental with our words. And the advice we give needs to be very clear advice to quit nicotine using those words, not saying, you know, it's probably not a good idea or it's not a very smart thing to do. We really need to give that clear quitting message and then explain the benefits to the patient and why we think it would be good for them. So here's an example of a personal message. Mary, I know you run cross country. Quitting smoking can help your lung capacity and that could probably help you run faster and farther. As you're a pediatrician for so many years, I care about you. I want to help you stay as healthy as possible. So if you could quit vaping, it would be a really important way to keep you healthy. And, you know, quitting is hard, but I believe you can do it. And I'm here to help you and make sure that that happens. So that would be a personal message. And then, of course, how do you have this conversation? It's motivational interviewing. I think we're all getting really good at motivational interviewing, especially vis-a-vis trying to vaccinate people, manage obesity, so many other things that we do in our practice, but motivational interviewing in particular, it's great with adolescents because we all know teens don't like to be told what to do. So it's really a perfect tool for them. And I like the ORS approach. Most of you have probably learned this, but just to review, ORS is an acronym for open-ended questions affirmations, reflective listening and summarizing. So in the context of a vaping counseling conversation, it's gonna go something like this, open-ended question. Help me understand why and when you escape, why why and when you vape. Can you tell me more about that? From an affirmations perspective, we're gonna say something like, um, wow, I really appreciate that you're willing to share that with me. So we recognize strengths and acknowledge, When it comes to reflective listening, you might start by saying something like, well, what I'm hearing you say is that you've been feeling very stressed out lately and that contributes to your urge to vape." And then finally, a summarizing comment might be something like, "Um, here is what I've heard you say, and then you might summarize what you've heard and then ask your patient, did I get that right? Did I miss anything? So that's what the counseling conversation looks like. You are going to encounter many patients, if you start doing this, who are considering quitting, but they're not ready, or they're just not even considering. But our goal for everyone, so we don't just stop, our goal is to get our patients then at least to a contemplative stage of making change. So you can just say something to them like, okay, what I hear you say is you're not ready to make a change yet, or you're not interested, but let me know when you are ready to quit, I have something that can help you. And then always include a personalized health message is why you think it would be a good idea for them. One of my favorite questions to ask when I'm counseling someone is to say to them, and many of you probably use this in other forms of motivational interviewing, on a scale of one to 10, how ready are you to quit? And then I ask them to pick a number. And when they do, so let's say it's a three or a four, I say, okay, so you're at a three or a four. What do you think it would take to get you to like a seven or an eight? And when you ask that, you get your patient thinking about you know, what the pros are and what the cons are and how they might get to that next place of making change. So even if someone's not ready, we want to offer encouragement, we want to still ask them, as I said, to think about making change. If someone's clearly unwilling to change, we don't give up. It's really important to continue to follow up. And sometimes that message that I'm not giving up on you and I care about your health as your physician is what it really takes to get an adolescent to make a change. One of the other things that's suggested is to offer up what's called a two-week challenge. And that's saying, because these are often teens who say like, I'm not addicted. I can quit anytime I want. It's just something I do and I enjoy doing it. So you might say, hey, would you like to try to go two weeks without vaping? Let's see if you can go two weeks without vaping and see if they'll take you up on that challenge. If not two weeks, you could ask for one week or you could ask for a couple days. Um, The last thing I want to point out though in counseling is we often have to take a moment and think about Well, why did this start in the first place? What is this teen self-medicating for? And so it's also helpful to uh, explore some alternative methods to manage what might be that underlying diagnosis like anxiety or depression that's actually driving the vaping. Because some teens may not want to quit, but they might be open to treating their anxiety. And of course, if we can do that and help them feel better, we might get closer to helping them onto the path of cessation. Okay, finally, treatment. When we think about cessation treatment, the quit plan, something called a quit plan, i will tell you in the next slide what it is, is really central to cessation. And then that's anchored by behavioral support treatments, medication treatment, and follow-up. When we build a quit plan, we are asking teens to quit completely, get rid of all tobacco products, and get themselves into the quitting mindset. We need to help them prepare for triggers, people or places that they want to avoid because that's going to trigger perhaps vaping for them. We need to let them know what the withdrawal symptoms are like irritability, cravings, mood changes, weight gain, because they need to prepare for that. We can help them build a quit kit, which is something that might include maybe their nicotine replacement therapy, some reminders of why they're quitting, lists of alternative activities they can do when they're they're feeling like they want to vape. We have to help them engage social support, parents and friends that are going to be there for them when they're trying to make this change talk to them about self-care. Teens don't always have good strategies for managing their stress, so we can help them think about things like distractions, going for walks, spending time with a pet, whatever it is that gives them that sense of self-care. And then we always plan for slips or relapse because it's common nicotine is so addictive and we have to let them know from the beginning that they just have to forgive themselves and then get right back on track. This tool that I've been telling you about gives you a breadth of information on behavioral cessation supports. There are text-based supports, um, there are web-based, there are apps. I'm gonna show you some of them uh, a little more specifically. In Texas, you have both um, a quit line with a web-based program. Youth don't need parental permission to access that in Texas. And then there's also um, this Texas Youth Tobacco Awareness Program. And this is part of, um, I'll call it like a restorative justice around um, teaching, teaching kids and helping them if they're under 21 and they're cited for possession of tobacco products. These are some of my favorite behavioral support tools through the Truth Initiative, um, something called Become an X, this is quitting. So these are text-based supports for teens that can be very helpful. From Smoke Free Teen, there is something called Smoke Free Text, which teens can sign up for, which is a great behavioral support, as well as the Quit Start app that lets them design their quit plan. When you go to the AAP tool I showed you in a couple slides earlier all of those um, links, they're hyperlinked and they take you right to these resources. And then these resources exist both in English and Spanish. So finally, medication support. Medication should be used for anyone who's moderately to severely dependent on nicotine. And the best time to start these medications is when your patient is first starting to quit. So it's a mistake really to try to quit without using it. They're, um, they're used because they relieve the withdrawal symptoms but they provide a safe and controlled amount of nicotine. These have been shown to be safe and effective in adults. There is plenty of evidence in adults. We don't have the evidence for youth except we don't have another option. And so it's really the AAP policy actually to recommend that pediatricians consider off-label use for nicotine replacement therapy for youth because we don't have a better option. Um, There are five forms of nicotine replacement therapy, gum, oral inhalers, lozenges, nasal spray, those four are the short acting forms, and then we have patches of different doses, and that's a long acting form. And actually when you pair a short acting form with a long acting form, like a patch, can be very effective. Um, I like to point out when it comes to treatment that there is health inequity. And um, while nicotine replacement therapy can be very effective, there's evidence that youth of color are less likely to be screened, they're less likely to be treated, and they are more likely to experience barriers when they're accessing nicotine replacement therapy. So we really need to keep that in mind so that we ensure that all of our patients have equal access to this treatment. Um, When you go to this tool and you look at the types of nicotine replacement therapy, you can see them listed, you can click on them, and then for each of these, there's a great document, like the one I'm showing here, this is busy, don't worry if you can't read it, but it shows you each type of nicotine replacement therapy, the dose, The indications and the instructions for using the expected side effects, because a lot of these will cause some nausea or mouth irritation and specifically how to use them. So, for example, when you use gum for nicotine replacement therapy, it's called a park and chew method. The kids don't just chew the gum, right? We have to know how to prescribe something or it won't work. So they start to chew it until they get a tingling feeling in their mouth. And then when they do, they park it in their cheek, between their gum and their cheek, and then they repeat that cycle. And so if you take a close look at these sheets, it tells you exactly how to prescribe it. You can take this information, you can cut and paste it right into an after visit summary for your patient. It's absolutely doable. Nicotine replacement therapy for anyone under 18 must be by prescription. If a parent is involved in this process and working with the teen to be treated, the parent can purchase it for them over the counter. So when we're treating, we also have to follow up. That's part of treatment. And we've got some questions for our patients when we follow up and we need to follow up in a very short order, never more than two weeks. We really need to keep on top of this, but the follow-up, doesn't have to be in person. We don't want to create barriers to follow up. It can be patient portal messages. It can be phone calls. It can be telemedicine visits. So you're probably saying, okay, great. Um, How can I do all this? There is no way. We all feel the pressure of time. We all are so busy in our work. But what I want to tell you is this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's something that you really need to do over several visits. And everyone figures out Their own tempo, their own pace for doing this. But you can first just start with a visit where you go through the Ask Council and you determine the level of dependence, you determine your patient's level of motivation, you ask them to try cutting back, and you introduce them to support tools. Then you have them follow up. And at that follow up, maybe you get a little more into an appointment that's focused on motivational interviewing, introducing the idea of a quit plan, reintroducing behavioral support tools. Then you're going to follow up again. And in that case, you sort of come to the quit plan, right? Let's get the quit plan going. Let's set the quit date. Let's go. And you start with the nicotine replacement therapy. Then you're going to follow up to see how that's going and follow up and follow up. Follow up support is so important. So. If after I've gone through all of this, you are still someone who says, you know, I don't see how I can do this in my practice. I don't have time. Maybe I could ask questions. I'm not sure about counseling. Counseling, I don't feel comfortable with treatment. Then at the very least, we can all take action, right? We are natural advocates as pediatricians. We do this every day. We're trusted resources. We are credible and we know how to advocate. And so if you're thinking all you can do right now is be an advocate for patients and try to make a change in this epidemic, then we need to do things that reduce youth demand, youth access, and also things that make it harder to access like higher taxes, educating more people, and working to change smoke-free air laws so that youth aren't around, aren't around e-cigarettes or exposed to them as much. Okay. So with all of that, I hope that I better illustrated for you that vaping has become a youth epidemic. There's already evidence that highlights the negative health impacts of vaping on our patients. And I also hope that this information has motivated you to not only begin screening and counseling in your own practice, but also to support treating your patients so that we can all begin to positively impact this youth epidemic. And with that, I thank you for your time, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. I think you've got a copy of my slides, and I have some of my um, favorite resources if you're interested in learning more.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sarota, for that fascinating presentation on vaping epidemic and what, what can we do as a pediatrician uh, to curtail that epidemic? So let's see. I see uh, Kathy Edward. Do you have any question? I see hand raised.
0: Please
1: go ahead and ask your question. I'm not um, hearing the question. Yeah, okay, I will. I will repeat it if somebody asks. Anybody has any questions, they can put it in the chat box or ask the question directly to Dr. Siroda. You know,
0: the AAP also recommends that pediatricians uh, treat parents. Um, or smoking cessation, and um, so just thought I'd bring that up and it's it's basically the same, following the same methods. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, um, that's a great point. And sometimes that's what happens is you engage the youth and you end up treating the parent and the youth at the same time.
1: Any other common questions? Any solid steps in getting legislation? Do you know anything about that? I know you're in one in advocacy.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I I would say it's very state dependent as far as... um, any legislation that's happening now. So probably our our biggest goal would be flavor bans. And um, that is just happening far too slowly on a national level at the FDA level. So what, um, what I do see happening is locally. So in particular, California has been a leader in this where individuals are working locally to have flavor bans on all tobacco products. Um, and I think that's probably what we need to be doing now and not waiting for something to happen at the federal level. And actually, in California, they were able to show that um, instituting these flavor bans on all tobacco products was a way to reduce Um, e-cigarette or vaping use among teens. But you have to be very careful when you do that research because what happens is a ban is legislated, but it doesn't go into effect until uh, sometime later. And so when you study that, you have to look at the dates of when a ban goes into effect as opposed to when it's legislated or you'll miss that association.
1: Susan, there's another question in chat. How difficult is it to get patients to follow up on this issue? I imagine it is based on the, their readiness to change.
0: Um, absolutely, it's based on readiness to change. I think, I mean, I have a, a, a unique situation in that I'm in primary care and my patients are used to coming back and seeing me. One of the things that works is giving them options for follow-up. So it doesn't always have to be an in-office appointment. So I might say, is it easier for you to do a portal message or do you wanna do a telemedicine visit with me? And then keeping track of those patients, reaching out to them, And or if you are seeing them in a context of a visit, making sure they check out and making sure that they have some way of connecting with you for follow up. Once there is motivation to change, it's much easier, obviously, to follow up because someone's looking for that help. But I think the key is that we don't lose track of these patients ourselves. Like if they are anywhere other than a one on that scale of one to 10 to make a change, that we're reconnecting with them. And worst case, if it's from one checkup to the next or one specialist appointment to the next appointment three months later, don't forget to bring it up. Just bringing it up might make a change at some point. Thanks for listening to this Grand Rounds episode of Pediatrics Now. For episode ideas or questions, you can email us at pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu or if you Google Pediatrics now, you can see our webpage. Thanks again for listening.